Hello, and welcome to A History of Japan. Season 3, Episode 6, Kofun Art. Last time, we talked about the general development of the Yamato court and the various clans that supported it. There is a danger with history podcasts like this one of myopically focusing only on the developments of state organization while leaving out the cultural development as well as the connection between the two. The manner of art which a society creates often informs us more about that culture than an examination of its government. With all that in mind, let's begin. The most well-known art from the Kofun period is probably the Haniwa statues, which they would use to decorate the tumuli which the communities built for their leaders. I've mentioned already how much is learned about the Kofun warriors' gear thanks to these ritual statues, but Haniwa were made to resemble many things beyond just armored fighters. Depictions of ritual shamanesses, miniature houses, various domestic and wild animals, horses, commoners, and even everyday items like pillows are found in various tombs, and there is little doubt that part of their purpose was to replace more valuable bronze and iron grave goods, which would have been used during the Yayoi period. The style which the sculptors employed can best be described as haunting to our modern eyes, though I am not sure if this was intentional. The clay soldiers usually bear a stony, serious countenance as they stand at attention, while the commoners usually appear with rather blank expressions. For the most part, the human statues have a sort of crude appearance and seem to have been figurative rather than realist. The purpose of the Haniwa is generally believed to be spiritual protection for the leader buried in the tumulus. It has also been suggested that they were considered vessels for the departed's soul, or that they were believed to contain some spiritual avatar which would help protect the ruler from fell spirits and thus protect the community as well. Apart from discouraging grave robbers, because who would want to risk execution by desecrating a royal grave just to find some fragile earthenware? The Nihon Shoki hints that the Haniwa may have served as a replacement for a much darker funeral custom for the Kofun elite. You might recall that the records of Wei attested to human sacrifice being part of the funeral rituals of the monarchs of Japan. The Emperor Suinin, according to the Nihon Shoki, issued an edict to create clay figures and not to hurt people anymore. Sato Hiroaki, a Japanese poet and frequent contributor to the Japan Times, suggests that this passage is specifically calling for the creation of Haniwa to replace human sacrifice as part of the burial custom. For anyone wondering, no, the timeline does not add up regarding Emperor Suinin, who was almost certainly mythical. The chronicles credit him with reigning from 29 BCE to 70 CE, far earlier than the oldest Haniwa and the oldest Tumulus. Regarding ceramics, 
the Kofun period saw the rise of Haji-style pottery, which was simple, unglazed earthenware that bore almost none of the decorations of the Yayoi period pottery that came before it. You might be tempted to assume that this sudden collapse of aesthetics portends some awful calamity that befell Kofun Japan, but it is actually the opposite. The reason these plates, pots, and cups became so plain is that they began to be mass-produced by teams of artisans using standardized tools. Where did this semi-industrialization begin? In Kansai, of course. To be more specific, it originated in the region which would later be divided into the provinces of Kawachi and Yamato. Haji pottery was finished in open fires rather than kilns, and I think it is safe to understand the Haji period as one of stylistic simplification. Everyday pottery was no longer the primary source of artistic expression. Funeral pottery like the Haniwa now filled that role, along with early forms of painting. Some of the Kofun tumuli were made like caves, and the stone walls used to support the structure were decorated with eclectic paintings. Some were esoteric shapes and symbols whose spiritual meaning is lost to us today, but there were also renderings of mythological beasts like dragons, everyday animals like horses and chickens, buildings, and symbols of warfare like swords, bows, and shields. These images were relatively simple as far as paintings go, but when you look upon them, you can really see the beginnings of the minimalist style which Japanese art would later become famous for. This custom seems to have emerged in the later part of the Kofun period, beginning around 450 and tapering off in the 600s CE. As citizens of various Korean polities emigrated to Japan, the wealthier among the newcomers brought peninsular-style ceramics called sue pottery. Kiln-fired at over a thousand degrees centigrade, that's nearly 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, this type of ceramic generally emerged with a much smoother finish and, while technically unglazed, often bits of ash from within the kiln would settle on the pottery and melt, which gave it a very polished exterior compared to the porous hajiware. It is a little curious that the concept of kiln-fired pottery came to Japan from the peninsula. Kilns had been employed in metalworking for centuries, particularly in the lower areas of Kansai, where dotaku production became an important endeavor. I don't have a ready answer for why it seems like the Japanese didn't figure out kiln firing for ceramics on their own. It is possible that various craftspeople had little to no interaction with one another, especially if they were kept so busy producing their own wares on a large scale. It is also possible that the Kofun period Japanese already had such a profound sense of tradition that making ceramics in a different way would have almost seemed heretical. Whatever the case, as Korean artists taught their Japanese counterparts the art of hot kiln firing their pottery, 
It spread far and wide throughout the land. It seems that local production of Sue-style Japanese ceramics originated near Osaka, and one practical application which the Japanese eagerly employed was roof tiles. With kiln firing, roof tiles could be made much stronger and soon became the primary choice in roofing for temples and shrines. Meanwhile, the plates, cups, pots, and bowls made in the Sue style became symbols of wealth, and the more prosperous clans of the Kofun period made a point to acquire them and make their everyday food and drink just a little bit fancier. As kilns proliferated throughout the islands, Sue pottery gradually overtook haji ware as the everyday implement of common people as well as the powerful. A thousand years later, the methods and techniques of Sue pottery would be revived and utilized in specialty regional styles in parts of Chugoku. And speaking of Chugoku, let's talk some more about the kingdom of Kibi. Although it remains a mysterious historical entity which we really don't know much about at all, the kingdom of Kibi is extremely fascinating because archaeology tells us that the people who lived there seemed to be developing their own culture separate from that of the surrounding country. One thing they have left behind is large carved stone statues called Kasai Rakan. These statues have a very different style than similar works found throughout Japan during this period. The heads are shaped atop the statue, but the body is rendered almost as a simple vertical rectangular cube, with the front being carved to look like arms and hands are gesturing from behind a window. They remind me, in their appearance, of large chess pieces. Because the Kibi kingdom is shrouded in such mystery, it has seen no end of speculation. Some claim that the different style of statues indicates a difference in the Kibi people's basic appearance, and that they may have been a non-Japanese, and indeed, even a non-Asian people. The book The Quest for Kibi, released in 1999, claims that the statues resemble the Scythian nomads of Eastern Europe. Theories like this are always exciting. How interesting would it be to find a European ethnic group settled in southern Chugoku, surrounded by Japanese polities? However, I think that such theories often leap to conclusions much sooner than they should. For one, realism in art is far from a universal conceit. Art isn't supposed to merely look like its subject, it is supposed to feel like its subject. Regarding the so-called Caucasoid traits of the Kibi statues, these features may have been considered attractive, thus artisans would portray their subjects, who were mostly powerful nobles, as having these attractive features, regardless of their actual appearance. As far as any supposed stylistic similarity is concerned, there is a Kofun-era clan, the Hata clan, whose crest is a six-pointed star. For years, people tried to make a link between the Hata clan and a supposed tribe of Jewish people who made their way east, certain that the six-pointed star must mean that they were of Jewish origin. To this day, 
no such connection can be made, and historical consensus is that this similarity is just coincidence. When in doubt, apply Occam's razor. The simplest explanation is the most likely to be true. Assuming that a different style of statues means that a European ethnic group must have migrated all the way to Japan sometime before the 300 CE feels like too big of a leap for me to take. I hope that with further excavations and study, we can learn more about the mysterious Kibi kingdom in the future. In the meantime, we will turn our focus back to the Yamato court of the early 500 CE and its many shenanigans. Until then, you can follow the podcast on Twitter at A History of Japan, visit the online store ahistoryofjapan.threadless.com, and find us on the web ahistoryofjapan.com. Thank you.